I'm Anna Marie Cox. This is Space the Nation, a podcast about the politics of science fiction, but also just science fiction. I host another podcast called With Friends Like These that is more specifically about politics. Hi, I'm Dan Dresner. I'm a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I write a column called Spoiler Alerts for the Washington Post, and it took me three years to be able to say Christian Avicerala's name without thinking about it. <laughs> we are currently recapping the fifth season of The Expanse, and this episode is going to get very real IR theory up in here. <laughs> I cannot stress that enough. I was literally going squee throughout much of the episode. Whereas I was going, it's a bomb, it's a bomb, it's a bomb. Like, I'm trying to, like, it's, it, I don't do that very often, like, talk to the characters, but this one I was... I was in the more like in the moment rather than theory in terms of <laughs> Anyway, the episode is called Galgamela, which would also could potentially be called Arbella because they are about the same thing, which is a battle fought uh, in Hellenistic Greece between Alexander uh, the Great of Greece and Darius of the Persian Empire. And Alexander the Great won. It's considered one of his finest victories. Uh, he was vastly outnumbered. He won it if I'm if I'm reading Wikipedia correctly, <laughs> <laughs> he won it out of tactical um, brilliance and also having an army that was more dedicated. Mm-hmm. And the title of this episode of our show is "No More Worlds Left to Conquer," which is a bastardization of a quote that's attributed to Alexander the Great. Where uh, it's actually not not a quote; it's. Um, a description where Alexander wept mm-hmm. for there are no more worlds left to conquer. I thought that appropriate as, you know... It's apropos. It's definitely Marcos apropos. has attacked every world. <laughs> but I, I know these quotes are often apocryphal, so I wanted to hunt mm-hmm. down whether or not it, this one was. And it turns out there is an original version from Plutarch that's a little oh. more apt in a way. Oh, really? So I'm going to okay. read that one. And it's uh, an actual, supposed to be an actual quote from Alexander the Great. Have I not, quoth he, good cause to weep, that being there are an infinite number of worlds, I am not yet the lord of one. Ooh. Talk about ambition. Good lord. Ambition. It also captures him on the cusp of victory rather than having conquered. That's true. Yes. Yes. And infinite worlds, which is what Marcos is you know, ambition is. So Yes, that is absolutely the case. Well, that is enough chit-chat and context. Let's get to the meat of the episode. Dan, will you please give us a recap? I will. And this was an unusual episode because I think to some extent the episode takes place in what we would consider real time. Uh, so it starts at the Razorback. And not a ton happens in uh, this part of it. Uh, Alex and Bobby are trying to track the Martian ship. Um, and... Basically, not really much is going the bar on. Keith, they have an in- which may the have a meaning of some kind. Who knows? I didn't look yes. that one up. But the Barkeith is basically breaking, and, and other than that, not much is really going on, except they get a notice that the UN is saying, don't come to Earth because uh, the asteroid that we saw strike um, at the very end of last episode has clearly struck. We will revisit this conversation, but other than that, nothing actually of that moves the plot happens on the Razorback. It then cuts to Earth, in which Amos is going to uh, the pit to see Peaches, also known as Clarissa Mao. So Amos goes down uh, to this UN penitentiary uh, 
to a really lower floor where it's essentially the supermax part of this prison where anyone who has a mod is kept, um, which obviously includes Clarissa. There is a scene between the two of them in her very isolated cell in which I think it would be safe to say Amos sort of slowly realizes himself that the reason he is there is essentially to pay it forward, to help uh, Clarissa in the same way that Lydia helped him, you know, escape the churn. Except at that moment, literally everything goes dark because the second asteroid um, has struck Earth. At that point, uh, the situation then switches to Luna and Earth, in which uh, Christian Avasarala is just desperately trying to get in touch with Nancy Gao, because it turns out that the first asteroid to hit Earth, and potentially the second asteroid to hit Earth, are not necessarily planet killers. Um, Nancy Gao and Earth, uh, the UN administration, is confused. They're not sure why these asteroids are hitting. They think that potentially the Sentinels are being hacked. Avasarala obviously knows that this is Marco. She and uh, Admiral Delgado keep trying to reach Gao's staff. They are frustrated in doing so. And then Avasarala hits upon the ingenious idea of contacting the pastry chef on board UN1, which does lead to the only funny moment in this entire episode, uh, in which Avasarala says, of course I know who you are. You fatten me up on macaroons, which was just a lovely line. I just wanted to jump in here because I think we're going to talk about this later. I hope we do. But the yeah. parallels to 9-11, of course, in this particular scene, I was thinking about mm-hmm. a lot um, yeah. and how uh, George Bush famously had to be really talked into not going back to Washington, right? Mm-hmm. Nancy Gao winds up not going to Luna, even though she's advised to, and that does, it wouldn't have mattered what decision she made, but I'm sort of curious about the kind of political theory of holding a stand of holding a stand like that it's tricky because you know it, 20 years later almost 20 years later george w bush is not thought of terribly well about what he did for 9-11 indeed this is there's a reason why everyone remembers rudy giuliani about 9-11 uh, as opposed to george w bush now you can argue that what bush did was the prudent thing and that in retrospect gal probably should have had to luna given what about is about to happen which is that uh after avasarala gets in touch with her um, and explains that it's a terrorist attack by Marco Onaris. Uh, Gao retasks all of the watchtowers and sentinels to focus on asteroids rather than to focus on Mars. Seconds after that order is given, a third asteroid uh, hits Earth, um, which appears to destroy uh, UN-1, uh, Nancy Gao, and approximately half the cabinet. The one thing I will say about this uh, sequence is that what it reminded me of in terms of 9-11 wasn't, it was partially the you know, confusion in terms of what should the leader do. But I think it was also the confusion about the event. I mean, if we remember in terms of 9-11, you know, when the first plane hits the the World Trade Center, I think a lot of people thought it was, an, a, you know, an accident. They weren't sure what was going on. It was only when the second tower gets hit that people begin to realize what is actually happening. And I think in some ways that state of confusion really comes through extremely well uh, in, this, uh, in that sequence. I want to add here... I could have added it later, but it's only barely mentioned in the episode, and perhaps we can think about why it's only barely mentioned, but the Martian Parliament is also attacked. Oh, no, we're going to talk about that, yes. Okay, okay. I just didn't see it in your little write-up. I'm sorry, yes. No, no, that's... I apologize. Yeah, so one of the things when uh, this happens, to be fair, that you find this out uh, actually in the Razorback scene, which is that in addition to the asteroid hitting Earth, apparently... The uh, MCR Parliament, and I have a question about that, actually, which is, how can it be the Mars Congressional Republic and then that's called the Parliament? I'm sorry, that's just a little nitpick on my part. (laughs) Um, Okay, 
We then leave Luna and Earth uh, and go back to Tycho, in which, in theory, a trap is set for uh, a cruiser that is supposed to pick up, or a freighter that is supposed to pick up the cargo container uh, in which Monica, the reporter, was ostensibly supposed to be in, but although they liberated her from last season, or last episode. The trap is laid, but it turns out that Sakai uh, was the mole. So, in a sequence of events, um, the freighter actually fires on Tycho. Sakai assassinates Fred Johnson. Uh, Fred quickly tells Holden that the last vestiges of the protomolecule are actually in Fred Johnson's quarters. Uh, Monica appears to be in Fred Johnson's quarters. The freighter sends a drone into Fred Johnson's quarters, which successfully steals the protomolecule, uh, despite efforts by Fred Johnson's uh, forces to thwart it. Um, Sakai also tries to abscond with Monica, but Holden shows up uh, and foils that element. But nonetheless, Sakai sends the drone and the protomolecule on its way. Uh, Sakai is kept prisoner, but nonetheless, Fred Johnson is dead. The OPA ownership of the protomolecule is gone, and it appears to be heading, presumably, towards the hands of Marco Inaris. I want to jump in with yes. my stray observation of this section, which is I wonder if Monica is going to write the Looming Tower book of the attack on Earth. Well, what I was going to ask you, which I, I think now is a pretty appropriate point, I was hoping you felt that Monica was dealt with better in this episode, because I know last episode... Well, they saved her life, I guess. (laughs) Right, but no, 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 but, like, they saved her life, but you were annoyed that they cut her out of the loop in the last episode. She's clearly very much in the loop on this episode. I mean, even before the the attack occurs, she's monitoring everything that's going on. Right, and also, you get the sense, and she turns on her iMod at some point, Mm -hmm. although I'm not sure that that will wind up making a difference, because... I don't think so. All the betrayals become clear. Um, I also was thinking... If there is a looming tower written about this attack, which for those of you who possibly don't know what we're referring to, the looming tower is a book by Lawrence Wright, amazing, amazing author, Texan author, um, who's (laughs) written many good books. But this one is about how some people missed the hints. Hints? What what would you say? Breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs, intelligence. There were... There was evidence that something was going to happen and it uh, did not get to the appropriate people. And in some cases, part of the problem was was that different pieces of that puzzle were held by different actors and they didn't know the other parts of the pieces of the puzzle. Which we have going on here, yeah. actually. Exactly. But the one thing that would keep her from writing it is she doesn't really have the perspective, I think. That writing it from a Tycho perspective would be weird. On the other hand, she is the one who probably could see the most pieces of any one in the kind of... No, I think that's correct. And indeed, the very fact that Sakai wants to kidnap her as opposed to kill her suggests that that she is viewed in some ways as an intelligence asset, um, even by by Marco's crew. All right. Um, Now, go to the Free Navy, why don't you? Yes, let's go to the Free Navy. Uh, So Philip finally takes Naomi uh, to Marco's ship, which is called the Pella. Marco's ship is way nicer than any ship we have seen involving uh, the Belters as we know it, with the exception of uh, the Rosinante. It would be safe to say that during this sequence, uh, Marco twists the knife into both Naomi and Philip. You know, essentially... What I can only say is playing mind games with both of them, um, with Naomi to essentially, you know, crack her spirit and with Philip to kind of crack his a little bit um, and, you know, tweak him for the fact that he did bring Naomi to the Pella, apparently on his own instinct rather than on instructions from Marco. 
At which point, uh, Marco gleefully tells Naomi what has happened, uh, including the theft of the protomolecule as well as the attacks uh, on Earth. Uh, Naomi is then put into her cell, and then Marco gives the speech. Um, so Marco uh, broadcasts to everyone um, the fact that he is the one responsible for the attacks on Earth as well as on the Mar- the MCR Parliament, that he has possession of the protomolecule. He lay- articulates a series of sort of deterrent lines in the sand as well as sovereignty claims. Basically what he says is, Look, Earth and Mars get to control their own atmosphere um, so long as they don't provoke us. That Earth and Mars, you know, are given sovereignty over their own atmospheres and over their own territory, but that's it. That if they engage in any further expansionary activity, he will launch the protomolecule against either of them. Uh, And furthermore, he makes pretty expansive sovereign claims, um, explaining that uh, as far as he is concerned, the Free Navy can control sovereignty over the entire outer belt, the outer planets, the ring, the ring gates, and all the other worlds beyond the ring gates, which is pretty large. Which gets us back to the Alexander the Great line about an infinite number of worlds and I only have one. So Mm -hmm. that's why that's a sort of more interesting uh, quote uh, to appropriate for this episode, though I'm quite sure, you know, that they do a lot of history and context for the expanse, but not sure they they went that far. I wanted to point out, I know we're going to talk about this more, but Mm -hmm. just on the very short summary that you've done about his speech, he also makes some... Um, human rights claims, which I yes, think is pretty he, important. That, no, that is important, to be fair. Um, I, it, it says something that I focused on, this sort of IR sovereign yes. uh, stuff, but you're right. <laughs> I apologize for that. To be fair, the speech also contains you know, his motivation. His, he claims the attacks on Earth and Mars are justified by the economic violence um, that uh, and cruelty and exploitation that the inners have perpetrated on the belters for decades slash centuries. And therefore, um, as he sees it, this is a proportionate response. All right. Wonderful recap, Dan. We are now going to move to the quotes section of our show. I will begin. These quotes okay. happen to be in the order that they came in the episode and mostly, I think, in order of importance as well. <laughs> And then a few hours after that, I was just tired. No matter how traumatic the loss is, you only have so much emotional stamina. Even grief can get used up. So, in terms of whether or not these are in order of importance, so I would argue that that is perhaps the most important line in the episode, although it has nothing to do with international relations, I suppose. Because grief fills this episode. And how we deal with grief. And I was struck by it because, you know, you and I haven't brought in the real world much, like what's <laughs> actually happening right now in politics. Um, mm-hmm. because Or our daily lives. <laughs> or our daily lives. But we haven't even begun to reckon with the level of grief that the toll of the coronavirus will have. Mm-hmm. And so yes. just trying to magnify that out. Mm-hmm. So the way I would put it is that I would tie, you're right, grief doesn't necessarily come up in international relations, but what does come up in international relations, and I think it's the counterpoint theme of this show, is survival. And in some ways, the, the I, I really, I was, I was awestruck by this sequence because in, it, it's a very meta 
sequence because anyone watching the show is aware that Earth is about to experience or as experiencing a massive calamity. And in some ways, I, the point of this was not really... I didn't think Bobby was... Bobby was talking to Alex, obviously, but I also thought Bobby is talking to the viewer, which is say, this is how you are going to have to cope with this episode and the implications of this episode going forward, um, which is this is... A, we're about to visit some wrenching stuff. And it also ties in, I think, to Amos's uh, storyline as well in terms of about how to survive. And so that, that part of grief, you know, grief can overwhelm you, but the the... The only way to survive is to not let it overwhelm you or it's to let it wash over you. And that is you. Bobby's message yeah. is that there is only, there is a limit to grief. Right. Exactly. And I, I, know I was put in mind of the Stalin quote about one death being a tragedy. And <laughs> I think is it a million being a statistic? I can't remember yeah. what the other side of it is. But that's that's something this episode gestures at. Yes. At least. Which is can you even comprehend this? Because there's a question about whether people can, I think. Is Marcos no, really I, know? Does Marcos really understand what he's done? Does Philip really understand what he's done? Like there's sort of, a, we know Naomi and how empathetic she is. So we might have a sense that she knows. But And it's not a coincidence, by the way, that Naomi is easily the most shattered character in this episode. Um, that while others are suffering and, and feel bad, about, you know, like, but like Naomi is just, you know, and, and, Props to Dominic Tupper for her performance in this episode, but like she's just a, a wreck by the end of it. Yeah, and yeah, I think I just think the question of what you do with grief and and right. what the limits of grief are um, is something that I imagine we're going to be dealing with a lot in the show. I would like to play our next quote now, uh, Dan. Yes. This is one that you picked out. Mm-hmm. Let every state comes out. So this comes at the tail end of the conversation between uh, Clarissa and Amos in which Amos is just sort of, I think, in some ways only realized himself why he's come to visit um, Clarissa. And it is because he feels like she is someone worth saving. He has been saved. He wants to save her. And in some ways, it's the counterpoint to Bobby's quote, which is, you know, Bobby just assumes that that everyone should absolutely, you know, the only way to survive is to do these things. And Clarissa, I think, is obviously interested in survival. She literally had the choice, we know, in the in last season of committing suicide before they came to Earth and chose not to do that. But I also think Clarissa is very clear, and, and this is going to be an interesting question going forward, I guess, is, yes, you can survive, but you have been marked, and the scar will not heal, and you will not necessarily be able to make yourself whole. And in some ways, this goes to... I don't think Amos would necessarily agree. Or Amos Amos knows that, that you are marked by your past, but but oddly there is an optimism to Amos that which is not it's normally a quality that I associate with him, but in this case I think there is. About I being bet able Amos to escape would one's say origins. that he's being realist. That he Maybe. knows that you can overcome the marks of your past. Yes. That that's his experience. Right. And I had a lot of thoughts um, during this scene about what Expanse has to say about our destiny and the ways we mm. try to change our destiny mm-hmm. and how Clarissa was born into extreme wealth right? and found unhappiness there, you know, <laughs> like she was always compared to her older sister. Her She felt rejected by her father. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and she literally changed who she was. Right. She literally had operations to change her being to something else, to something else that she thought would be better, that didn't turn out to be better. No, and we see the we see the cost of that because it, because of her modifications. You know, one of the things we learn in the converse in that in this scene is she can't really have them removed. That would be in some ways even worse. And she is pretty drugged up in the scene that we actually see her in. And and it would be safe to say experiencing discomfort. Yeah. And I just wanted to just the expanse is interested in this question of both, I think, physical destiny and um, familial destiny. Mm -hmm. Uh, Physical destiny comes up with Naomi uh, and her attempts to adjust to gravity. Mm-hmm. And also the general, um, the classes of the expanse, the the belters are defined by their anatomy. Right. And, well, their labor and their anatomy, which yeah. are sort, which are incredibly linked. And I've always and loved altered. that about yes. the expanse, you know, yeah. that they've created a labor class that also is literally a different kind of human. Yes. Uh, and then also we see the question of physical and generational destiny in Naomi and in mm-hmm. Philip. The nature-nurture question Mm -hmm. of who Philip is, is top of mind to Naomi. Kudos to uh, The Expanse for finding an actor that does seem to be a genuine split between (laughs) the two characters. Yes, in all seriousness, holy holy crap, he really does look like, you know, Dominic Tupper and Keanu Anderson. Yes, exactly, yes. While we're on the, the subject of people looking like people, I will point out that I found a, uh, a mosaic portrait of Alexander the Great where he looks exactly like the actor playing Marcos. It's really yes. interesting. To the extent that a mosaic can look like anyone these days. You know, it's all flat. Mm-hmm. Weird. Um, yeah. So the nature-nurture question, you know, it's right I, there. So the other thing I thought about this is, as you say, you can argue that Clarissa and Amos in terms of nature, might have the most different possible origins. Nature and nurture to some extent. You know, that their their origin stories are extremely different. Amos is an orphan on the streets of Baltimore. Clarissa is born into tremendous privilege. And yet, by the time that they see each other, in some ways Clarissa is in the exact same boat, is in the same churn. Um, she has no family. She has no ties. You know, Amos is weirdly in a better place, both emotionally and materially. And it really is clear that Amos sees and he's triggered by what happened last episode when he's in Baltimore to think, okay, I need to or I owe it. I have to pay this forward. And so that was what struck me. Yeah, I have a question about that. Yeah. I couldn't really tell if they were trying to say that Amos wouldn't have gone to see Clarissa if he hadn't gone through the arc in Baltimore or if he was always intending to see Clarissa. The impression I got was he would not have gone to see Clarissa without what he he went through in Baltimore. That while I, mean, he I think that he, de- yeah. he definitely wouldn't have gone to see Clarissa without all the growth he's had, you know, throughout the past. Right, few but let's wait. Li- if I don't think At, absent, past few seasons, right, exactly. But but had Baltimore gone a somewhat different way, I don't think he would have gone to see Clarissa. I guess is the way I would put it. I would also point out that. The acting in that scene is subtle and yes. magnificent. West Chatham is doing in that scene sort of what I wanted him to do in Baltimore, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think, per- portraying the newness of this experience for Amos, mm-hmm. the the novelty of feeling empathy and 
love and care for someone. And to tie back into the physical, mental, you know, discussion that you had before, in some ways, the, the, the symbolism of this is that he's shorn of everything before he goes to see Clarissa. And that's, uh, that, that's entirely consistent. You're going to a prison and so on and so forth. But it also is clearly symbolic. He has to give up his jacket. He has to give up all his belongings, you know. And, and so he is not quite stripped, but he is, he is more naked than usual. Quick note on the prisons. I was surprised to see prisons are still prisons. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I don't know. That like, looked like a pretty I've nice been mar- prison. I've been doing some marching, you okay. know, about stuff <laughs> that has to do with getting rid of prisons. Okay. I, I thought th- we were going somewhere. I thought, I, and you know, Earth has evolved in so many ways, but they're still treating people who have committed crimes like shit. Well, okay, this is maybe this is the more conservative part of me coming out, but like that prison didn't look that bad. As as prisons go, <laughs> come on. Like I you know, like there there are really I, I, I agree okay. with you about the horrific nature of, of the prison system now, but like, you know, that prison you know, they go into the supermax facility and there's a gym for Christ's sakes, and like oh, you know, you're right. You're, you know what? It is clean and well it's clean. lit. Yes, and I mean, you know, I think in the books there's also a reference to recreational dreaming. I want to say, maybe like you have the choice of kind of being in a a light coma. What was cruel, however, was I mean, based on cl- the discussion of Clarissa, it sounds like unfortunately Clarissa is still essentially. 23 hours of the day subject to solitary yeah. which is which is cruel and inhumane and i agree with you on that point yeah. um but it may know the dreaming thing it's like this weird thing like you can choose to dream away your time in prison oh which, god that's yeah. what's the point of it, I, whatever like it may yeah. i may be misremembering i'm sure that one of our like hundred listeners will let me know um <laughs> 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 all right let's move on to our third quote yes it's everything we ever dreamed of You've murdered millions. So that is obviously just a tiny snippet of the exchanges um, between uh, Marcos and Naomi. I chose that because I found his invocation of the um, plural first person to be chilling. Hmm. The we and the us and him clearly roping Naomi in on that. Clearly bringing her into that group of people who wanted this because he knows her past. We don't get a ton of this. We've gotten some of it in previous seasons. We've gotten Mm -hmm. none of it in this season. But Naomi was a radical. Naomi was, you know, an OPA terrorist. Mm -hmm. And she plotted with him. She Mm -hmm. was on the side of of what what he is now doing. You know, or she would have been, she was on the same path as he was. So I found that to be just emotionally really gutting. Right. So uh, two things. First, I, I don't know if we mentioned this, but in the very first season, episode of the season, we actually see the monument in Luna to the terrorist incident that, that Naomi contributed to and, and feels guilty about. The other thing I would say is that the other, if there's another theme in this episode, it is God past decisions are going to haunt you. Um, that, you know, Clarissa is still paying the wages for what, you know, the, the the choice she has made. And Naomi is just confronted again and again in a, you know, really, I think she only has about 10 minutes of screen time, if that. Um, but is just, you know, 
it, it's sort of the double punch of seeing what Philip is growing up into and the ways in which Marco is capable of just really mentally abusing her. It, there's no other way to put it that like no, he, he, he was he was abusive to her. That, yeah, that he, is one reason that she left. Yes. He knows how it's, to wound her in psychologically in, in, in ways that that only a partner knows how. Right. I, I think it's pretty clear in, in, in the books that he was not physically abusive. Okay. Um, he's a violent person, but I don't believe he was violent towards her. It mm-hmm. was all emotional manipulation and his yeah. ability to get her to do things that were not in her value system. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and again, it, and, I, 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 you have to give props again. Is it, is it the actor's name, Keon Alexander, I think, actually? The actor playing Marco... They've cast exceptionally well because the the thing that you get from him is not just the sort of chilling nature of what he is planning, but the charisma. He really does, you know, you, you can see him as a leader of people um, and he plays him ex- exceptionally well that way. And so uh, it is profoundly chilling, not just watching him manipulate both Philip and Naomi, but also that final speech um, because... Which- Dan, do you want to talk about that final speech? <laughs> Should I very we give much... people a chance to get up, go to the restroom, you know, grab a bite to eat? <laughs> go, go get refreshments because I have so many thoughts about that final speech and the IR implications of it. Um, but, but perhaps, Anna, we should play, you know, at least a snippet of the speech. All right, Dan, we're going to play a little bit of the speech. The okay. last line. Yes. If you've watched the episode, we don't need to play it over again. But let's get a sense of it. Here we go. This attack was retribution for generations of atrocities committed by the Inners against innocent Belters. No longer will Belters be persecuted and subjected to the savagery and inhumanity that the Inners have been poisoning our species with. We will take what is ours by right, yes, but more than that. We will lead the belt to a new, better form. Okay, so, you know, as the, the orchestral score behind you suggests, this is a, uh, a, a speech that, is, that builds, that is clearly designed to rally uh, the belt around him and designed to make it very clear that the Free Navy is now a great power at the same level of Mars and Earth and... The, again, you, uh, as chilling as Marco is, you must give props to his strategic genius because he has managed in one fell swoop to potentially um, incapacitate Earth, wound Mars, and acquire two deterrents, two weapons of mass destruction. One, obviously, the stealth tech asteroids, which we don't know if he has more of, and second, the protomolecule. This is all a pretty formidable and, and much grander um, strategic surprise than anything that, let's say, terrorists like Osama bin Laden have, you know, succeeded, you know. Uh, I wanted to ask you, doing. is there any parallel to this? Is there any historical reference that you could make that would that would be this kind of power inversion this fast? No, honestly, I can't. Um, I can't. Yes. Okay. There is. I can think of one, but it was unintentional. And that is what is called often uh, the Colombian Exchange. Um, which is what happens uh, when Cortez first goes to Central America to encounter the Aztecs. Um, the Aztecs are a pretty formidable empire. 
the Incas are also a formidable empire. Um, they might not be as technologically sophisticated as the Spaniards, but nonetheless, you would have expected a much fiercer fight. And in the end, what winds up happening is in the next century, the Aztec and Inca empires dissolve completely, in part because of Spain's superior use of firepower, but also because of disease. I was um, going to say. Yes. It, 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 so in I guess this biological sense, warfare, unintentional biological warfare. But it was warfare. unintentional biological warfare. And so yeah. whereas what Marco does is extremely intentional. And so in that sense, um, I, I cannot think in IR terms of anything quite... I mean, I guess the only other example I could think of is Genghis Khan. That would be the only other one because... You what know, did they, he acquire? China, India, no, I Russia. Meant, what was his... Like the power inversion. The power like inversion came from the use of cavalry. Horses, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That 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 he, he, he just essentially created... Um, you know, lightning fast cavalry that was able to completely overwhelm his uh, his adversaries. But you're right, as a technological innovation, it there's nothing like this. I think um, you could count cavalry kind of as a technological. Yeah. In- innovation oh no, it definitely that, counts. That, as a, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but um, but nonetheless, this is you know extremely radical thing. But the part that I am not clear about, I have many questions for you, Anna, because part of the I don't know how to the extent the show is going to be deviating from the books, and I don't know what's in the books, you do. There are ways in which, despite all of the, you know, uh, charisma of the speech and the audacity of what he has done, I don't see this playing out the way he thinks it's going to play out. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so, I'm not... And so, as audacious as he has been, and as strategically sound till now as he has been... I have many questions about what the whether he has anticipated all the responses, and I have a ton of questions about Mars as well. Um, so do you want me to just list them, or should we go one by one? Why don't I attempt to sketch out some of the context that's in the books okay. without spoiling anything? Yeah, this is important. I would say the reason I laughed when you said this is not going to go according to plan. Yeah. No. <laughs> I think I don't think I'm spoiling anything <laughs> to say it's not going according to plan. And mm-hmm. I think it's broadcast a little more clearly in the books how f- flawed Marcos is, that there are blind spots in his thinking that mm-hmm. have to do with you know, any strong man uh, is blinded by arrogance. Right. right. And he and God knows Marco is, an, is arrogant. Right. Which even he, I think by- even he acknowledges he's arrogant. Yes. Right. So he's he's blinded by arrogance and he is um, blinded by unwillingness to see things anew, I would say. Hmm. Um, he is stuck envisioning the same power structure that has always existed. It, it, maybe it's inverted, but it's, right. you know. Although, so this is where the speech, the speech hints that maybe, or at least he aspires to something different. I mean, the speech is all about how the, the inners were all economically oppressive and unjust. We will not be. Now, I didn't buy a word of that. Oh, because well, I didn't mean I didn't mean that that, that part. I, okay. I, I have questions for you about that part. Yeah, um, yeah, okay. What I meant is that I think he thinks that you can just kind of have a, a triad power and that's going to be it. Oh God! You know? Okay, so and he and he can just be the top of the pyramid now. Right? Did you, did you get that sense? Because I got that sense that he's like, all right, I win. Yes, you know, I, I got the sense he, that what he was... I win! <laughs> right. Basically, and I, and I, he, it would be safe to say he believes in the power of deterrence. He really does. I assume what he thinks is, 
Earth and Mars are going to listen to me because if they don't, I'm going to launch the proto-molecule against them. And that would be the end of their worlds. And so they surely will, will recognize that fact and, and so forth. And, and th- therefore, weirdly, he, he does seem to think that, like, he thinks that checkmate has happened and therefore the game is over. Yeah, he thinks the game is over. That's what I thinks, would say. Is yes. I think he thinks the game is over. Also, he thinks he can handle power. Yes. Um, which is different than being a revolutionary. Or a disruptor, we, as it were. Yes, exactly. Right. So this brings me to the question that I had for you, historian, IR expert. Mm-hmm. Do the formally oppressed make better oppressors than the previously oppressive? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, hmm. Or is just power corrupt? And it yeah. just, it's, you know, humans are humans. I mean, so he lays out. Power corrupts, a, man. There's just yeah. no other way to put I mean, this. Um, so so I, I think the answer is, is that, you know, if you look at formerly colonized or hidebound countries, that when they acquire power on their own, what do they do? You know, look this way. Th- this should tell you something. I think the best case scenario here is the United States. Because, no, I'm not joking about this. Because whatever you say about the United States, the United States does not view itself by and large as, you know, historically as a territorial empire all that much. I mean, obviously, Manifest Destiny and it, yes, yes, I know, it, it you know, it, it takes the entire North Some American genocide economy. on the side. There's genocide, yes. Know. All of this is awful. But beyond those borders, beyond what is now the U.S. borders, the U.S. engages in imperialism, but it's not all that much. There's the Philippines, there's the Caribbean, <laughs> there's some other places. Yes, and I know you're laughing, but compared to the British and the French and the Germans and so I, forth. I, I am laughing in part because lo- radical little me actually has to seed points there. Yes. Um, also, um, I'm uh, romantic about the U.S., believe it or not, still, <laughs> yes. um, that the oppressors gave the oppressed the tools uh, mm-hmm. to gain more freedom. And that is pretty unique in history, um, as far as I know. But that- nonetheless, the, the, from the U.S. perspective, it's seen itself as restrained. Now, from other countries' yeah. perspectives... It is not seen as constrained, particularly if you live in Latin America, uh, where the United States has intervened approximately. I'm not romantic about that. Yeah. I was talking about like within the borders, we have created a system that Mm. seems to expand freedoms outside our borders. Yes. Yes. We but didn't. Then, learn, we we you, seem to have not learned that much. But about you can also point to countries like Japan, for example, which for 300 years was, you know, isolationist and and by and large checked by, uh, you know, refused to uh, engage in others and then had no choice but to engage in the outside world when Commodore Perry steams into Tokyo Harbor. Um, And as it begins to create its own empire, it is absolutely brutal toward its colonial uh, possessions in ways that, you know, continue to affect uh, relations up into the present day. So, no, I don't have much hope. Uh, that a newly ascendant belter state is suddenly going to treat either its former colonial um, entities with any uh, uh, with any grace. And I certainly am suspicious of the Free Navy's ability to cope with resistors. Because the other thing that it, I, I need to stress here is that clearly what Marco thinks is going to happen is that by delivering this speech, the belt is going to rush to his side. And... 
I'm just going to gently suggest that that might not be the case. Um, there is no doubt, I have no doubt that a faction of the Belters will probably rally to his cause, but I'm assuming the OPA is not going to take this line down. I am assuming there will be some internecine warfare, to say the least. And, and that's the arrogance at work and also yeah. the ironically still being tied to a certain vision of power, right? right? That it's a pyramid. The other and and that if you tell people what to do and you have all the power, people will do it. I want to point out about the Belter allegiances. We we often speak of the powerful nature of the minor roles in Mm -hmm. uh, the expanse. Sin, yes, I think is doing a marvelous job of conveying doubt. Yes. Well, not a ton of doubt, but some doubt. Not a ton, but like, no, but I think like, I think you're seeing in him kind of like a, hmm. Okay, so this is what we're doing. Hmm. Yeah. And and clearly feels far more affection towards Naomi than anyone else, um, which I'm assuming will also affect things going forward. The other- And also the, the subtlety other- of the actor playing our traitor. Uh, Sakai, yes. Sakai. Okay, Sakai. so this, so, Okay. I have another big sort of bank strategic question, but I want to get to Sakai because I will confess, you know, we've talked before, we talked in the previous episode about how men are so silly and very easy to, you know, give in to, uh, you know, a woman uh, treating them well. I got to admit my gendered assumptions led me vulnerable to Sakai. Um, So in the first three episodes, like I think I actually wrote a note. We didn't get to it. But in the last episode, I was like, I want to talk about Sakai more because I really like her. Um, You know, she was an interesting character. She didn't have a ton of screen time. But, you know, she she had some interesting interactions with Naomi, uh, interesting interactions with Holden. You know, you think she's reasonably good at her job. Whereas the other character that we meet on Tycho, Bull, who is sort of, you know, Fred Johnson's second in command, seems like an asshole, uh, you know, is is pretty dismissive and condescending to belters. Um, and so, like, obviously you knew there was a mole on Tycho, and my impulse was to assume it was Bull, despite the fact that he was an Earther, just because he seemed like an unlikable guy. And so when Sakai does what she does, and I'm not going to lie, another part of this is Sakai has the most adorable voice. I don't know if that's an inflection does. by... by by the actress but like it's a cutie pie voice there's just it it's done yeah, extremely no, it's, well it's, she's she's um an endearing character and, yes. and so it was doubly like, cool when she plugged right. fred johnson <laughs> yes i will point out that she is the one who says at some point i guess i'm not as enlightened as you are to naomi That's yes like, I, I thought back to that scene i actually did think back to that scene where it was like oh i guess she that was a clue yes and we can tie this back to the idea of destiny because fred johnson is an earther. Yes. He's an inner. He's responsible for one of the most um, infamous massacres uh, in the history of the conflict between the belt and the inners. Right. But he redeems himself, right? Like that's mm-hmm. his arc is that he yes. realizes that the belters are the oppressed and he spends the rest of his life mm-hmm. attempting to give power to the belt. Indeed, he gets the proto molecule for the belt. Right. Sorry, this goes back to Naomi's bad decisions again, because remember, it's Naomi that gives Fred the protomolecule, but keep going. Sure. Okay. Fred, doing everything he can for the belt. Mm -hmm. But for Sakai, he's still an Earther. Yes. He will always be an Earther, and she shoots him in the fucking back. (laughs) I mean... It, It does get to these questions of identity. You're absolutely right. I mean, in that Fred thought of himself as a belter, and... I would say, you know, fairly 
a, a significant fraction of Belters probably viewed him that way as well, but not everyone, and clearly Sakai falls into that category. And it does, it, what it suggests is, and this ties back into what we talked about in the first episode of this season, which was that the prospects of the belt were looking upwards no matter what, where they were looking good. That clearly everyone going into the ring gates meant that there was more demand for the Belters. Medina Station was doing well. Um, Belters were going to Luna to to work. And so I will be very curious how the belt how the Belters react to this rather audacious move by Marco and also the balance of force between the Free Navy versus whatever the OPA can muster in terms of a response. Does this yep. steer us back to the larger question of the speech? It, so there is a large, there is another, well, there is another question I have from the speech, or not so much from the speech, but from the strategic implications, which is, I want to talk a little bit about the attack on the MCR parliament, because that is barely mentioned in the episode, and, but nonetheless is is done so in a way to suggest that Marco has attacked both inner worlds, and yet, um, I'm suspicious of this, and so... Uh, and it ties into, of course, the Mars plot of uh, Admiral Sovater and and sort of the link, presumably, between Philip, who got the Mars tech, and whoever is selling him the Mars tech, and the fact that Avasarala had the Sentinel or the Watchtower switched to focus on asteroids. Um, it was pointed out several times that this meant that they're not paying attention to Mars, and Avasarala in a previous episode dismisses Mars doesn't want to attack us. I think that might be true of the current Martian government. I am not entirely sure that the current Martian government is long for this world, is the way I would put it. That there are there is clearly going to be another shoe dropping on the Martian plot. And, and indeed, we, we even... This is clued in in the very beginning of this episode in the recap where they actually have so like a snippet of Sovater's speech, even though we mm-hmm. don't see him throughout the entire episode. So I'm assuming something is coming down the pike on that front. God, it's so hard to not. I'm sorry. Yes, like explicitly spoil things. That's a warning I can on my say, part. I think that you're onto something. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Um, and it is late. It, it is the exact contours, you know, have yet to be laid out and could be different than the book. Right. But we, mm-hmm. I think you are correct. And also, it's not that it's not that subtle. Like even like a yeah. big dum dum could see that the attack on Mars was not that bad. Right. Like, I mean, well, we don't we don't get told how bad it is. Right. But, but an attack on one building t- as opposed to three, you know, serious, essentially nuclear explosions or even larger. And even the explosions. attack on Tycho yeah. to get the proto molecule has, you know, genocidal implications. Right. right? And so these are the big important attacks. Yeah. And then there's like there was a bomb in the parliament and they don't even like they you know I guess it could have been really bad and and just on the scale of right, but it doesn't it's, get it's mentioned. Right, but it's barely mentioned. Like I mean it literally I think it's on a screen and they're like you hear it for one sentence. Um Yeah. So that that's So that one does seem to indicate that that attack was several you know several orders, orders of magnitude, of magnitude lower yes, yes. Um, and but, that that yes and wow yes we do get a little update in the recap about um and also in the exchange between um uh, uh bobby and alex about what's going on with the martian black market yeah you know how did they get that stealth tech exactly right? yes you know um, hmm, i wonder yes and what who knows? could be who... in it for what could be in it for someone in the martian military right to ally with this terrorist faction and that's actually the ir question i had for you coming out of this oh okay go radical terrorists aligning themselves with a 
a state actor. I'm not going to say it's a nation state, but like state actor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the 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 Martian military. Um God That knows, seems unusual. It's it is not unprecedented, um but it tends to not go well. Uh so Pakistan would be one example of a state that is that is funded various violent militias usually targeted either in Afghanistan or against India. That would certainly be one example. I hate to say this, the United States would be considered another possibility in the in the <laughs> There's no other way to put this in the civil war in Cambodia and as well as the civil war in um in Syria, the US was temporarily allied with Oh, the Contras. Yeah, the Contras would also uh be true, you know. Um the Reagan doctrine to some extent was was the idea that it was worth funding even repugnant anti-communist guerrillas in um, Nicaragua, in Angola, and in Cambodia. Those are the sort of three examples. And in, in Afghanistan, so long as they fought communists. Of course, this then led to essentially Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. Um, it actually endorsed the Khmer Rouge uh, guerrillas in in Cambodia and the Contras uh, in Nicaragua. Um, so, yeah, it is safe to say that this usually does not work terribly well. Um, indeed, this was one of the messages at the very end of the movie Charlie Wilson's War, if you've ever seen it. Where, <laughs> I have uh, seen it, actually. Yeah, where like it's like, yeah, you want to defeat the Soviets, that's fine. That doesn't mean that the replacement is always going to be... You're going to have to deal with the implications of that. So, yeah, it is safe to say that this usually does not work out for the state-sponsoring actor. Or and people. So, like, yes. people seem yeah. to get killed a lot. Like, there's a lot of murder. Yeah. Which there's a part of me that just wants to talk and talk and talk about the kind of person that can do what Marco did. Or the kind of person that can weaponize Marco is the other way to think about this. I mean, it, it, it's it's a two-way street That's here. That's true. That's true. Um, because, you know, there's no illusion to what Marco Onaris is. Everyone knows what he wants by this, what he, what he wants to do by this point. So the fact that the Martian, even if it's a black marketeer, armed him. And, and one of the things that a lot of people who study these sorts of things talk about is that there's a fine line between, you know, corrupt economic motives and political motives. And so I, I think we will see more on that, I assume, in the next couple of episodes. The last big strategic question I have for you is the other assumption that, that Marco makes is that he has deterrence, that surely after launching an attack this audacious, there is no way Earth would come and and deal with him. And certainly Earth is now reeling from the three asteroids that have struck them. The question I have is whether that is actually correct. Um, Generally speaking, attacks like Pearl Harbor or 9-11 do not lead to these kinds of of just sort of, oh, okay, we were wrong. We will just, you know, stand by. Did we sit back and take it when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Um, (laughs) Now, in some ways, those are unfair comparisons because the attack that we are seeing on Earth right now is much more massive. And I think the thing that, that is uncertain at this point is just how severe the attack is because the first asteroid I think was described as several hundred kilotons in damage. We have two more attacks. The UN chain of command is, is scrambling. I think the thing that is uncertain to me is whether this is an extinction level event or not. And also, even if it is an extinction level event, how long does earth have? Because even though it's a declining power, it is still not an insignificant power. And also the earth Navy, the UN Navy is still in, you know, one assumes still in space. Like right, they're not, exactly. They're not... Like, 
all on Earth for some reason. Yes. Exactly. So I, I don't I think I want to point out something, which is I, it's not entirely clear to me that the third asteroid hits because like the way that Marco says it, it's a, almost like future tense. But I, I could be. No, no, no. There was a completely. No, there's a. So wrong. there are three asteroids. There's the first okay, asteroid. There are definitely three. Yeah. There's the first one that was at the end of last episode. Then, oh, right, 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 right. And then there was okay. the second one that hits, I think, north of Philadelphia. And then the third one that destroys Nancy Gao. Um, so, yeah, there's three. And then that's okay. it because the watchtowers right. are retasked and they destroy the other ones. So I guess what what is unclear to me is, is this the end of Earth or is this just Earth suffering a massive attack and will continue? And I know that I, I, I think I'm vaguely aware of what happens in the books, but I'm not sure they're going to go that path in, in the show. Yeah, that's that's they've taken some bold deviations from the books. Yeah. Um, this could be a place to do it. I think for the purposes of like gaming it out as just viewers, I think we can assume a near extinction level event, mm. like that the Earth will become uninhabitable soonish. Like soonish could be years, soonish could be decades, but ah. that it is going to be a place that humans can no longer live anymore. Because and, I think mm-hmm. that the idea of turning humans into a refugee race mm-hmm. is something that's pretty important to what the series I think wants to grapple with. That will be interesting. And the question again, it's this this is where we are starting to leave, I guess, the way I, there's no other way to put this. We're leaving international relations does not provide much guidance at this point because we've never well, <laughs> extinction no, we, level events. It, extinction level events, you know, they've they've happened to civilizations, um, but that means they disappear. It doesn't mean that yeah, they international miss- relations disappears. Literally, yeah, there's no international. Yeah. If you um, have an extinction level event, there's no nation. So right, but like what what, in other words, this would be like <laughs> what do you do with the if the Aztec Empire. You know, in other words, if Mexico was uninhabitable, but the entire Aztec, you know, like enough of the Aztecs moved right. somewhere, then you could talk about this. So I don't. The question I have going forward is: Is it you know? Does Earth just become a refugee? Does Earth wind up producing nothing but refugees, or does it maintain itself as an intact actor? I guess with I think we can. I mean, I think it's. I, I do not think at all. Spoiler alert! Um, to say that um, Earth maintains some sense of power right. um, on Luna. Luna becomes like yeah. the de facto capital of Earth. Right. Right. Um, and we have a not intentional. I am sure Battlestar Galactica reference in terms of like chain of command getting blown up. Woman <laughs> suddenly like. Mm-hmm. All right, I guess I'm in charge now. Um, although Avasarala, of course, has been in charge before. Yes. Um, but I just thought it was funny because the whole being on a plane and like, whatever. So I have to say, going boom. Right. No, the re- the reaction I had to that. Also, the, the question, again, this goes back to the real world. I have to admit, I had this thought about like the fact that Avasarala winds up calling the pastry chef. I have this image of about a month from now, Donald Trump calling the pastry chef on Air Force One or like, you know, <laughs> calling the wait staff somewhere in the White House. Because he's, he's realized that China is going to attack. No, <laughs> just because he wants attention, frankly. Let's be honest. He's not going to do it for any higher purpose. But like, you know, he's going to be pissed off because no one's, you know, his his Twitter account is going to be falling. He's no longer going to have all the perquisites of power. I can just see him calling randos 
um, you know, to talk to them. Oh, and I, I can, can see that too. And, and one of them being that. the White House pastry chef. That's all. That was th- that was the only image I had from that. I can I can see that as well. Um, although I think it is safe to say, on a scale of black to white, uh, Vassarala is white and yes. Donald Trump is black. Like it, they are as far apart in terms of temperament and leadership and, and political every skill. Other yeah. political skill. Every just the names of the things you want to name. Yeah. Any character trait that exists. No, again, I, I, in, all, in all seriousness, props to the writers because they it, that was an ingenious way to, to suggest that Avicerala yeah. was simultaneously being blackballed, but yet somehow finds a way around, you know, the blackball. Are we done with the big speech? Oh, God, yes. Yes. Okay. Then I think we should just get to uh, odds and ends. Do you have anything more you would like to get to? Um, I'm trying to think. Mostly, oh, I wanted to say tech stuff. There's a tech tech question I thought um, of watching the attack on Tycho, which is, shouldn't we be seeing more killer droids? That like, was no, thank you. I kept that like when the droid came out, I was like, damn, this is the first time I've seen this. Like I was wondering when we, you know, like it was one of the obvious questions to ask. We see drones fly overhead on Earth, for example, um, but yeah, I was sort of wondering why you don't have more mechanized mechanized warfare, as it were. Um, yeah, that just, I mean, because it was like a cool droid and everything, but yeah. I was like, wait a minute, like, they should have lots of these. <laughs> and you should, furthermore, you would assume they, <laughs> they would... should be using all these all the time. Like, right. the Martians Not, have particularly those, like, in robot... space. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, mm-hmm. like, the Martians have their suits, right? Like, you should be doing. Anyway, so yeah. that was one thought I had. Uh, another thought I had was another very important scene in a bar. Oh, uh, yes. I thought for a minute when uh, Delgado took. Vasarala to the bar to like show her that people were confused in pain. Yeah. You know, whatever it is, I guess he was trying to illustrate. Uh, that she was that going she to was rally get, the like, troops? No, that she's going to get like sworn in in the bar. There was oh, going to be like oh. a, like a LBJ kind of, <laughs> you know, scene where like all of a sudden they realize that she's in charge and they, she has to get sworn in in some really super awkward way. Do you swear? Um, okay. Take a shot and you now are, you know, inaugurated. Yeah. And, I was happy that that was not the case. Although that, that scene was weird for me. Um, no, that was the only off-key scene I felt yeah. in the entire episode. Because, like, it wasn't shocking they were... Actually, the other thought, stray thought I had about that was the fact that I was just thinking, thank God cell phones... Thank God smartphones were not prevalent in 9-11. Um, oh. Because <laughs> in some ways it's the closest thing I can think of. And, and you know, it, it reminded me of, like, if we have another event like that going forward, that's how everyone is going to find out, essentially. Yeah. I want to know, you've made me think of something that The Expanse solves in its kind of series architecture, but doesn't mention very much, which mm-hmm. is what might happen today if there was a extensive terrorist attack, and we all have cell phones and social media and whatnot, is that some portion of society might say it's fake. Yes. Um... <laughs> That the expanse is... addresses this not I, I think I think we might have found this out like I think it was actually it was in the political ads right in the it was in because the they have like they, on, they on last season they have like a two key authentication something or other right. like there's some sort of public access key that verifies information that you can you are getting it from a trusted source right let me put it this way so, I, I don't I don't blame the expanse for not dealing with conspiracy theorists because really <laughs> or misinformation. Or like misinformation. if you really could yeah. 
if the technology was so good mm-hmm. that as it obviously is in, in the expanse like you could have people just being like nothing's real nothing's real. right you can have deep fakes all... exactly but let me put it this way i don't yeah. i don't blame them for not going down that rabbit hole because first of all we have to deal with it as it is and second of all it solves a lot of problems i assume like in terms of, of plot writing problems in terms of just saying look just assume that the un is is you know certifying and offering two key authorization so dan we talked a little bit about how you feel as a non-reader of the books um the questions you have and whatnot do you want to lay out anything like explicitly that you're thinking about maybe next couple episodes again i i'm assuming that i want to know is there a belt or civil war i want to know when the mars shoe drops on this because it's clearly going to i want to know the precise nature of the damage to earth we've seen a lot we you know this was a shocking episode in a variety of ways i think in some ways what i need to know is the damage assessment now um and 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 how each of these plots you know goes their own way and also i hope amos is okay i'm assuming he's going to be and and uh you know, clearly that that he's not going to be written off, but uh, it would be good to know how he winds up joining in on the rest of the action. So as a reader of the books, first I want to say something that I meant to say earlier and I can tie in now, which is the audacity of the series creators of doing this to Earth. I've talked about it a little bit before, but I think it's worthy of mention. Like this is something not many creators do to go ahead and take earth out douglas adams that's the only other example i can think of right i found it moving like i found myself feeling things Mm -hmm. seeing earth get destroyed Mm -hmm. and i I, part of me was like is that eartherism am i being a earther supremacist that this is an automatic reaction of mine or is it just i mean billions and you know millions of people but I think that it is a credit to the expanse that they are able to make you feel those stakes. Because I think in speculative fiction, because there is like a lot of wanton comic destruction, you know, like you, you're when you read something in science fiction, set in the future, you know, alternative history, whatever, like you're kind of like, oh, yeah, different things happen, mm-hmm. you know. I think to get a, to summon that sense of stakes yeah. is pretty impressive. Yes. And again, it, it the credit to The Expanse is, even though it is a sci-fi show, it is a sci-fi show where you feel like you are projecting from the present day to that. In a way that it is, frankly, no longer the case with Star Trek or with, with other sci-fi. Like, I feel like the world of The Expanse is, is possible. The other question I guess I have is that I know that millions are dead as a result of these attacks. There are billions who live on Earth. And yeah. the logistical nightmare of what is going to happen... If it turns out that that Earth is no longer habitable is a question that uh, I'm mildly terrified. And as someone who's literally teaching a course called The End of the World and What Comes After in in next month, um, I'm going to be interested to see how this goes. And I will say, I I don't think this is a spoiler, that the series creators are known for thinking through logistics <laughs> and the, the, the ways yeah. that things might work in this future that they have created. Mm-hmm. So I think they will address this pretty explicitly. Mm-hmm. And I am interested to see how that works out too. How, you know, what deviations it might be from the book. Again, uh, there is a Clarissa and Amos adventure to be had I think- here. <laughs> and that 
will be interesting. Just how they handle it, like where they go, how how arduous it is, how arduous they choose to make it. And then Naomi has um, a really important series of things to go through. Mm-hmm. And in the book, that storyline becomes one of, I will say, one of the most exciting things that I have read. Like oh, a, wow. a page turner type of thing. Like, oh my God, how is she going well, 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 to do this? Oh, oh, you okay. know, what's she going to do? Um, super interesting to see if, if that conveys or if they do something different or... Anyway, it'll be interesting to see. So I will now do the stuff we should have done at the beginning, but we wanted to spend a long time talking about that speech. And we did spend a long time talking about that speech. We are on Patreon if you want to give us money. That money is going directly to the people who help us do the show for the moment. Hopefully quality will improve. (laughs) You can also just listen. Uh, I have also put up a link to the foreign policy paper that Dan talked about last time if you want to read about weaponized interdependence. Oh, cool. And also, I created Space the Nation Zoom wallpaper, <laughs> which I'm sure is going to be in high demand. You can also get in touch via Instagram and Twitter. Uh, the Twitter handle is at underscore Space the Nation. Get it? There's a space and then Space the Nation. I did that. <laughs> I want to sign off with keep this channel open for more, but there is a chance that this channel, wherever you are listening to this podcast from, won't, in fact, be open for more because I keep fucking up the behind the scenes shit for the podcast. But we're going to get it out somewhere. There will be a channel that is open. Until then. And keep that channel open for more.